Well, good morning. Uh, today we're talking about good news. We can all use some good news, right? Uh, not only are we talking about good news, we're talking about food, which is always good news, just about. Uh, so we're going to be talking a little bit about that. You know, a couple weeks ago, uh, you guys had a, a part in, in uh, putting together about 40,000 meals to send to Ukraine, which I know are good. It's good news for them. It really is. I was talking today uh, this week to uh, my gen- dental hygienist, who happened to be the same one as uh, Tony, and uh, she is uh, from Ukraine. And she was talking about how much that meant. She actually was here that day to share, as Tony mentioned last week. But uh, <clears throat> she was talking about how important it was. And so I do want to commend you again. But, you know, food's one of the most crucial needs that people have. We all expect to eat several times a day, right? And it will continue to be for them a desperate need and, uh, and something because of loss of jobs, because of displaced people, because your economy is destroyed, it will continue to be a big issue. Now, in our world today, most of us don't worry about that. Uh, most of us don't really have a care. Uh, most of us probably don't know what we're going to have for lunch, but we know there's something, right? Uh, and if we're lucky, we'll get to go out to eat maybe and, and grab that. Uh, but you might say, we don't have anything to eat. You go to your pantry, it's full, but you don't, you don't have anything to eat. The reality is we kind of take food for granted, but it's a pretty important thing. And I think it's also interesting to see what the Bible says about food. The Bible talks a lot about food. And what I think is interesting is that there are several prominent meals that are mentioned in the Bible that can also give us kind of a roadmap of man's relationship with God. I bet you never thought that food would kind of define where we came from. And in fact, we'll look at our sin history and our salvation history as well. So today, that's where we're going to go with our message. And we're going to be looking at a few of the prominent meals in the Bible. So the first meal that we're going to look at is in Genesis chapter 3. And if you know the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, you know that God created everything, and then God made man in his own image, and then he created woman, where he took a rib from the side of man, And then he told them that they would be in this garden and they would be able to eat anything they wanted. And uh, all the fruit, all the vegetables of the garden, anything would be available. So obviously the first meal is going to be a vegetarian meal. Probably not your first choice, but that's how things were in the beginning. They didn't eat meat early on. And God said you can have anything you want. The only exception to this rule is one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we know the story how that Satan came to them, tempted them in the form of a serpent. First Eve, then Adam ate the forbidden fruit and committed what we call the original sin that brings sin into all of our lives, separating us from God, separating us from one another. It was a conflict with Adam and Eve as well, I'm sure, when they sinned, and also putting us under the curse of sin. And we could call this first meal, the first meal mentioned in the Bible, we could call that the fall. And the fall of man made a mess of everything. But fortunately, God had a plan. He wasn't through with mankind. And God had a plan. And one day, he was going to send his only son, Jesus, to come back to redeem mankind and to make things right again. But that was the first meal of the fall. God's next big move was to choose a man. His name was Abraham. And he would be the father of a chosen group of people. We call them the Jewish nation. A people that would belong to God, that would be God's chosen people. One problem, however, that was that Abraham's wife, E, uh, excuse me, Sarah, could not have children. So after several years and after several missteps as well, 
They did have a child, a child of promise that God had promised them. And then the family grew and multiplied until a famine forced them to go into a foreign country named Egypt. And it was there in Egypt where their family simply exploded. They went from a few dozen people to millions and millions of people. In fact, there were so many people there that the Egyptians who owned the land felt threatened by the Jewish people or the Israelites, and they enslaved them. And then God raised up another man, and his name was Moses. And Moses was called to lead the people out of slavery into a land that God was going to give them. And you can imagine, however, that the Egyptians were not really thrilled about losing their entire workforce, and so they resisted and wouldn't let them go. God was forced to, to send 10 plagues on the land, and they were horrible plagues of darkness, of death of their animals, of flies and frogs and blood and everything. Got to read the story. But at any rate, the last plague was definitely the worst, and it was the loss or the death of the firstborn sons of every Egyptian family. They would be put to death when a death angel would pass over each house. But in order to avoid the plague themselves, the Israelites were told to kill a lamb, a lamb that was perfect and without blemish, and would put some of the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their home. And when the death angel came, he would pass over them. And that was there. Then they ate the meal as a family. That was the second great meal in the Bible. We call that the Passover. The, lamb, the death angel passed over them because of the blood of the lamb. Now, the Passover went on to become a national feast that's still celebrated today by Orthodox Jews. But the real significance of the Passover is how it foreshadowed Jesus, the Son of God, who would one day come to be the perfect Lamb of God and would die to take away our sins so that the wrath of God would pass over us and would protect us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And so this whole experience actually changed the entire history of the Jewish people. And it brought them to their own nation, the promised land, when they left Egypt. And it also brought them to have great popularity and power as a nation. But the sad thing is that while they still celebrate the meal, the Passover meal, they have totally missed the point of it because they basically reject Jesus as the Son of God. So that was the Passover, the fall, the Passover. The next great meal in the Bible is one that Jesus shared with his disciples. Ironically, it was Passover time, and they, like all Jews of that day, were meeting together to eat the Passover and share together as kind of a family. And Jesus then gave that meal a new meaning. We call this meal the Last Supper. And you've probably seen pictures of it with them gathered around the table with Jesus. Jesus took the traditional emblems or the items that were part of that meal, <coughs> two of them being the bread and the, and the wine, and he said to them, this bread is my body, which is broken for you, and this wine is my blood that is shed for you, telling them that he was the fulfillment of the Passover celebration. And he was speaking there of his imminent death on the cross, telling them that he was going to die for them for the sin of the world, telling them that his body would be beaten, it would be pierced, it would be hung upon a cross, his blood would pour out as he died, and that that blood would allow the death angel, eternal death, to pass over all of us. And as Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, he gave them instructions not only to 
remember what he was doing, but also to keep on doing this in remembrance of him. So there was the fall, there was the Passover, there was the Last Supper, and then there's one more meal, the fourth meal I want to talk about, and that is the Lord's Table. And that kind of brings us to where we are today in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, the Lord's Table or Communion. The Bible tells us that the early church came together regularly, seemingly at least every Sunday, to gather and share in this meal of remembrance and of celebration. And so Paul gives us some uh, instructions here on how to celebrate communion. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for our scripture today. For I received from the Lord <coughs> what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. So Paul, the writer of this, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had been instructed and inspired to write this book and to explain a lot of things. The last few weeks we've been talking about what God told him to tell us. And so as, as we look at this, we see that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul in this section refers back to the Lord's Supper. In fact, he almost repeats everything that Jesus said. He said, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks to God for it. He broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. He took the cup. He gave it to them. He said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Basically repeating what Jesus had said himself with the disciples to remind us. Not only do we have a record in the, books, uh, in the book of Matthew and Luke of the Lord's Supper, but we have Paul repeating it right here to reinforce and kind of back up the importance of it and what it really means. And so today, we celebrate the Lord's table or communion, but we call it oftentimes call it communion as Christians. And a little bit later in our service, we're going to do just that. If you are with us on a regular basis, you know that we do that every Lord's Day. So let's talk a little bit about communion or the Lord's Supper. What does it really mean? Well, there's several facets to communion. It's not just a one-faceted uh, experience. There's several parts of it. First of all, as we've already read, communion is a memorial. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, we know what memorials are, right? We, we drive down the road, several places in our, in our county, there are these square signs along the road that said, this is what happened here. Don't forget it. We know that there are statues to remind us of people who live. There are cemeteries that are full of tombstones, uh, you know, to remind us of people who have already passed. So memorials remind us of something significant or someone significant that's in history. Communion is a living memorial to remind us of Jesus' death on the cross. As I said before, we as a church take communion every Sunday because we believe that once a week is not too often to remember what Jesus has done. It is a highlight of our service. It's an important part because our faith basically hinges on this act that we're going to celebrate when we take communion. In the New Testament, seemingly, it was a practice they did on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20 said, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. While it's not a clear-cut command that says you have to do this every week, it does seem to be implied that they came together on Sunday 
to share in communion. And so we practice that today as a memorial. Not only is it a memorial, but it's also a proclamation. The Lord's Supper proclaims something. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, what we do when we share is a little bit unusual. It's not something you do in everyday life. I think it's designed that way to remind us there's significance in the action and the significant in the very items of the meal as well. People might ask, why do you do that? People who have never been to church, why do you take the little cracker and the little cup of juice, why do you do that? And what's that mean? And it gives us a chance to proclaim who Jesus is. It's a powerful part of our testimony, and it's a witness to the rest of the world. Communion also is participation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which you give thanks a, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? The reason why communion is something that we actually eat and drink is that it's an action. It's not just something we think or say or repeat. It's an action. And whenever we take the bread and cup, we are literally participating in real communion or sharing with God. Commune means to share with God. And so we're sharing with Christ in that. And we're appropriating the benefits of Christ's death and we're experiencing forgiveness and cleansing and being made holy. So it is not a spectator experience or process. We actually participate. Communion also is to be unified. <clears throat> In verse 17, it says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Whenever we share in communion, it has a couple directions that we share. The first is obviously vertical. We commune with God, but we also commune with one another. It's an experience that we stop everything else and do. We partake as a body and a family in a quiet moment. But here's the amazing thing. It's a practice that stretches back from the 12 disciples 2,000 years ago down through time, through countless years, thousands of years, millions of believers who have gathered and shared in that. So it's a, it's a, a practice that connects us to the past as well as reminding us of the moment. And also Paul says there's one loaf and one body. Now I think in that day perhaps they had a loaf of bread that they might pull pieces out of. Today in our crazy world we're not going to practice in that way. And that's the beauty of it. There's no prescribed way that says you have to do it in this particular way. Today, we have the preformed little pieces of bread and separate cups that we're able to share together, but there is a oneness that we come together. Communion's supposed to be a demonstration of our unity, showing that we're all in it together, that we're all in desperate need of God. We're all sinners redeemed by Christ. We need more and more of him, and we need to be reminded very regularly of our need for him and our relationship with him. Here's another thing. Communion is exclusively for Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's body, table, and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So taking communion is one of the most common, most serious practices that we as Christians do. In fact, in the church, we basically have two of what we might call ordinances. We don't use that word a lot, but they're commands that are very serious. One of them is communion and the other is baptism. And they're very closely tied together. 
Paul says that before someone partakes of communion, then they need to be in an exclusive relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't be half Christian and half Muslim or half Buddhist or maybe like in Haiti, you know, half voodoo and half Christian, half pagan. You have to be full in. You have to be all, all in and you have to have a part in both the table of the Lord and, and of Christ and not sharing the table with anything else, any other belief system. In fact, communion is so specific, special and holy that we need to make sure that we're not abusing it, that we can do that. And so the Apostle Paul addresses several problems that they had in that day that, that they were experiencing, and in the same way that we might experience today, several issues that came up or could come up in our communion time. Kind of interesting what he addresses here. In 1 Corinthians 11, he said, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's table you, supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go about with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So Paul says, let's get straight what communion is. Communion is supposed to reflect unity, oneness, focus on God. But he says, your gatherings have become divisive and in fact, very individualistic. I'm not going to get that out. Individualistic is what I'm trying to say. I think the horseness makes it even worse, all right? See, they didn't want to wait on each other. They didn't want to share. It became very much about me. It was each man for himself. Some were getting a lot to eat, and some were getting nothing to eat. Now, what's going on here? Because we know when we partake of, of uh, communion, everybody gets a small piece of bread. What is he talking about happening here? Well, they would take communion oftentimes with a large meal, what might be called an agape banquet, or we would call it a carry-in today. And so they would have a carry-in, and everybody would bring all this food in, and everybody would enjoy it, and then they would take communion with that. The only problem is that the rich would oftentimes bring their own food and eat alone. Uh, they might tail, kind of like, like tailgate on their own without sharing it with everybody else. Or the rich would come early because they didn't have to work, and the poor, who might be slaves, uh, they would come late, and they didn't have anything much to bring. And so it was hard on them to see the rich people, you know, full and enjoying everything, and, and, and then have to worship with the rich. So Paul says this is the problem, this is humiliating and it despised the church of God. In fact, he said, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. This is your own supper. So here's what he says. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So the solution Paul has says, hey, listen, eat dinner at home. Stop the crazy carry-ins and the meals and everything you're doing. Eat at home and then come together to worship, take communion, all share together in a common meal like that. And so that practice has carried on down through the years. Another problem was drunkenness on the communion wine. Now in that day, they drank in moderation. Obviously in that day, we read a lot about wine in the Bible, and I do believe that it was alcoholic 
beverage, but in that day their water was not as pure as we might think today because of poor uh, septic and, and things like that. So wine was a pretty much part of their culture, but even then drunkenness was a problem. Drunkenness was and is a sin. Earlier, Paul had said in the very same uh, uh, book that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he included that with all other kinds of gross sin. Getting drunk on communion wine, though, was like another level. It was a gross sin. Paul says that has got to stop. Drunkenness, obviously, and addiction are a part of our world today. And so we as a church have chosen to use a non-alcoholic type of grape juice. And then churches do this differently. The church where my daughter and son-in-law worship, uh, they have, it looks like a smorgasbord. I mean, honestly, there's, there's so many different kinds. There's gluten-free bread and loaf and cup, and there's alcoholic, non-alcoholic wine. It's a lot going on up there. Last time I was there, I grabbed the, the alcoholic wine. And I normally don't do that. And, and Lori goes, did you know what you grabbed? And I'm like, I have no idea. I just, you know, just walk by and grab something. Uh, but we don't do that. We will use a non-alcoholic grape juice here uh, because, it's again, it's not the recipe. It's the symbolism of it, of it. The bread and cup are symbolic of Jesus' body and blood. And so it's important that we recognize and understand the, 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 the focus of it, the symbolism of it. So in that day, their gatherings had become wild parties, not quiet and reflective observances of the death of Christ. Taking the Lord's Supper is to be done seriously and soberly, proclaiming the Lord's death. <clears throat> and then Paul adds, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So there is a point where we're actually sharing becomes detrimental to our faith and in fact insulting to God. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be fi finally condemned with the world. So here Paul talks about <coughs> not only who participates, but how we participate. And uh, uh, kind of understanding how our approach, what our approach to communion is. Now, there are basically three ways that churches offer communion. There are, they are closed, guarded, or open. Closed communion is when it's limited to those of a specific church or of a denomination or of a group. So in other words, a church might say, Nobody can take communion unless you're a member of our church. Uh, to be honest, the Catholic church is like this a little bit. I wouldn't really be welcome to take communion there, not a member of, of their church. So that is, that's closed communion. Guarded communion is where everybody's invited, but a very strict warning is given as to who can partake. You know, some churches practice kind of what is called fencing the table, uh, which they kind of I guess it's kind of self-explanatory, very protective, where before they partake, the leader specifies specifically who can partake of communion. That's guarded. Open communion is offered freely to everyone who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ, letting their conscience kind of dictate their participation. Here at Journey Church, we would be somewhere between the guarded and the open. 
we don't want to dumb communion down to where it just becomes meaningless to anyone, but we believe that's the Lord's Supper, not ours, and so we can't really invite someone or deny someone to partake. But we do ask that those who, are, who partake here have believed in Christ, obviously, repented of their sins, confessed, and been immersed with Jesus Christ. Now, I share that because I told you earlier that baptism and the Lord's Supper are very closely tied together. Baptism is a sign and the seal of a believer who is all in, having shared in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Communion will not have the same meaning and significance to someone who does not have a true commitment to Christ. We want to protect the seriousness of communion and make sure that it has a true meaning to you. You know, I use the example sometimes that communion is kind of like my wedding band. My wedding band, Lori and I have been married for 40 years, and when I look at this, that's pretty daggone personal. When you look at it, you say, yeah, Randy's married, but it doesn't have any meaning or the depth of our relationship. So whenever we see communion, we say, okay, that's a very serious thing, but if you don't have a relationship with Christ and you've not, you know, died, buried, and raised with him, it doesn't have the same depth of meaning. So we want to make sure that it's always taken very seriously. Some churches also limit those who can partake based on whether they're in good standing with the church or who may be living in or condoning sin. And we've been hearing about that the last few weeks about some Catholic uh, churches that deny communion to those who are endorsing and promoting abortion. And uh, this is kind of based on verse 27, where it says that taking communion can be done in an unworthy manner. <clears throat> Notice it doesn't imply here that we are worthy of taking ever. None of us will ever be worthy of sharing in the communion with Jesus Christ. Instead, what it speaks of is the way that we partake, the manner in which we do so. And how can we do that in an unworthy manner? Well, notice what he said here. First of all, by not examining ourselves in verse 28. In other words, ignoring our sin, like having this gross sin in our life, and we're just ignoring it. We're coming together. And actually what it does, it almost creates a, a callous on our hearts. I feel like I'm doing what's right, but I'm just ignoring open, unrepented, unconfessed sin in my life. Another way an unworthy manner would be by not focusing on or recognizing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This would be like dumbing it down to where it's like another thing, like singing a song in our service, taking it lightly or irreverently, by being distracted by other people or by our thoughts or without thinking about what we're doing. And to be honest with you, that is a danger whenever you do it every week. That would be the criticism of some churches who only take it quarterly or monthly or once a year, whatever it may be, that that it takes away the, the significance of it by doing it weekly. And I will have to say that we have to work hard, I think, to keep in mind how significant it is so that it doesn't become just a habit. You know, back uh, pre-COVID, in fact, several years ago, uh, we always just passed it down the rows. And uh, that was just a, a common way to do that, and some churches still do that. Nothing wrong with that. But what I've found is that sometimes when it just come passes by, you can do this habit without really understanding or thinking about what you're doing. And so lately, we've kind of had it more of a response. And we'll do so in a, a few moments as we come forward to respond. And whenever we do that, I think it gives you time on the way up to prepare. It gives you a chance to focus on very intentional 
coming forward to respond in communion. And so that's one of the reasons why we do it like we do it. It also, I think, is as more of a sharing sort of way as we do it together and creates more unity. So we can partake in an unworthy manner by, in, in several ways, but we'd also, we might put in there, neglecting to take communion would be also another uh, wrong way to approach it. For many people, communion doesn't have an importance enough just to come together with God's people to take. You know, uh, I know a lot of people in church attendance has declined in our country, but what we do is we rob ourselves when we don't, when we neglect the sharing of communion. It also can be taken unworthy manner by making it a selfish thing or even a divisive thing by being critical of other people. It's to be a healing thing. You know, Jesus said that when you come and offer your gift to God, you should make sure that you have relationships resolved. And, and while uh, communion is not necessarily offering a gift to God or giving ourselves to him, and we ought to be right with people before we do that. In fact, Paul says when we do these things in an abusive way, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. In other words, we condemn ourselves by our own actions. Paul said that we should judge ourselves by the law of Christ so that we would not be judged and condemned with the world. And Paul says that those who do abuse communion will be judged and will be weak and sick and fallen asleep. That's an interesting phrase there, and commentators kind of disagree about whether this means literal. If you don't take communion, you're going to be weak and sick or even die, or if it's spiritual. You know, we're not sure about that. But to be honest with you, neglecting or abusing the Lord's table definitely can impact our walk with the Lord make us spiritually weak, sick, or maybe even spiritually deaf. Obviously, it talks about one or the other. So it's a very important part of our relationship with God. It's a meal that provides and nourishes us for our journey. And we gotta make sure that it's, that it's something we do on a regular basis. <coughs> so we should do our best, not only to observe and partake of it, but to do so in a way that honors Jesus always and that shows our thankfulness. Now, by the way, before I wrap up, there's one more significant meal in the Bible. And I'm not just throwing this in at the end because it really connects. In, in the, uh, this last meal will basically be a fulfillment of all the other meals. It will be a resolution of the fall. It will be a celebration of the Passover. It will be a reunion around the Lord's table. Because by the way, Jesus told his disciples that he would not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is talking about something in the future when he's going to seemingly share with us in a final, complete celebration of the Lord's Supper, which is pretty cool. And the final meal will be that promise fulfilled. And this last meal is described in the book of Revelation. And we should be excited about this. This will be called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here's what it says in Revelation. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made him herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, it was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? The wedding supper, one day we will celebrate 
with our Father and with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's what I believe, that communion is the closest thing that we can get to, to the wedding supper of the Lamb here upon the earth. And that's why I think we should always approach the table with excitement, with joy, with celebration, with hope, you know, with a, with a broken, humble heart and spirit. That's why it's so important to remember the significance of that and never underestimate or understate the value of communion and never say, oh, I don't, you know, want to go to church today because this is the most important thing that we'll ever do. If there was no preaching, if there was no singing, there was no fellowship, it would be worth it just to come together, to share, to remember what Jesus did for us. So having spoken that, let me just say this. In a few moments, we're going to share in our communion. I want to encourage everyone to make this a priority. And we've talked about the seriousness of it. It's not our uh, intention to embarrass anyone or anything. Uh, if someone is not, if you're not in a relationship with Christ, uh, I want to encourage you to get there. You know, it's obvious the Bible teaches what it means to uh, to live for him, and we don't ever want this to become commonplace or simple, but the way that we are able to share with an open heart, honest heart, is just to be obedient. And so if you're in a place where you have not, you're not in a relationship with Christ, you've not been baptized, we would love to have you join us. I would love to have that conversation. We can take care of that, and you can enjoy all the blessing that God has for you, because this is what God wants for us a meal of celebration and sharing. And one day we'll have that, singing his praises, celebrating the Lamb of God, Jesus, rejoicing with him and loved ones who are in heaven. All the nations and tribes and cultures and tongues, everyone comes together in eternal joy. And, uh, and blessed are those who are invited and respond to the invitation. And by the way, I believe there will be lots and lots of food there. It'll be beyond our imagination what that wedding feast will be like. But we will celebrate in all of its fullness what Jesus has done for us. I plan to be there. I hope you're there as well. And so in a few moments, we're gonna celebrate uh, with joy what the Lord has given us and done for us.